Let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're grateful for the time in your word and we're grateful for this path that you've laid out for us to understand the truth and ideas and the right life can be communicated one person to another with clarity we'd ask that we'd understand in the same way it was written in your son's name amen we're at the end of first timothy first timothy chapter six halfway through the second verse of first timothy six the i'm not quite sure why this is broken up this way but I want to start with this passage where it says, teach and urge these duties. Now that's the, that lets you know that something has gone before, probably in five whole chapters, where a series of duties that he's wanting Timothy to teach and urge them on people as an emissary of the apostles. And here on the left-hand side, I, I sort of roughly outlined. It's not a scholastic outline or anything like that. But if you go back to the first part of Timothy and start looking at what he has done with Timothy, he has left him uh, in Ephesus in order that he could convey these duties to the saints there. There's a bunch of details. You've got to stop people from being stupid, teaching false doctrine. And it's not, it's not something that the, that the preservation of the church somehow is obtainable. You would think that with an apostle founding and teaching like an Ephesus for three years, you would think that why? What a church it must be. And then he leaves Timothy behind. Leaves Timothy behind to um, run the thing, help it out, urge these things, you'd think it'd come across as a successful circumstance. Urge them not to teach different doctrine, nor occupy themselves with myths. But by the time Paul is on coming back from the third missionary journey, and he stops in Miletus to talk to the Ephesian elders, he warns them that false teachers were going to come up from, out, um, from among them. You, you you can't fix this crooked world. You can stand for what is correct, urge it, teach it, but the crookedness is always going to spring up. You can't make straight what God has made crooked. But that doesn't stop us from urging these duties, and there's a number of them. He's, in, in, in 118, he's to example Christianity in his life. He is to pray for all in 2.1. Uh, or encourage <coughs> the men to pray for all. Um, that's the part. That's the passage. I think I preached on it a few years ago, where I got to say to the women, "Shut the heck up," because it was that passage about women to be silenced in the churches. Teach and urge these duty, duties. Pray for the, so that you would not get into quarrels and fights, so you don't become quarrelsome. Now, as I was talking to somebody this morning, I think it was Jake on the porch, we had our first reading in The Great Divorce, and one of the key elements of the groundwork in hell, Lewis's, if you don't know the book, it's a bus trip from hell to heaven. 
And the first two chapters was the people on the, getting on the bus and riding on the bus. And they haven't gotten to heaven yet. And they're fighting, I mean, to the point where knives are out and guns are firing and nobody seems to care and everybody hates each other and people are getting tossed off the bus and, and uh, just awful. People are just being awful. And in hell, and in hell, they have everything they want. Anything they want, they could just imagine it and it's there. All needs are met. A Bernie Sanders utopia. And they still hate each other's guts. Can't stand each other. When we get into what it tells us in chapter 2 to not to be in prayer and to lift holy hands without quarreling, I think in 2 uh, 8, without anger or quarreling, this is a circumstance where we don't really realize how much of our humanity is being denied us when it says to do this without anger or quarreling. And we go after fixing everything, making a church exactly how we want it. If Evan can have it exactly the way he wanted, he'd finally be happy. But I'd still be, I'll still be, and, and others will still be regarding me, this temptation to anger and quarreling. We are, the, the problem's not that we don't get what we want, the problem is that we're quarrelsome. The problem is that we're angry people. Now, a bunch of these things, and I don't mean to preach through the book, I just try to say, he said, teach and urge these duties right at the beginning of our section. And you were hoping, as you looked down at the large typeface, and it didn't reach the bottom of the page, and you said to yourself, oh my gosh, I know the sermon never gets shorter, but this could be short. But he just spent, oh, I don't know, ten minutes on five words. And he's not even done reminding of you what was in... Well, you have good women not being deceived, qualified bishops, qualified deacons, looking out for religion that is denial-based, that you don't eat that thing, you don't do that thing. Paul covers an awful lot of very practical Christian living, what it's like to be a Christian, and then he tells them, put these instructions, this is in chapter 4, Put these instructions, verse 6, before the brethren. You'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus. And then in verse 11, command and teach these things. If you haven't sat down with 1 Timothy and looked at what an apostle tells an apostolic delegate to try to attempt in the church, if you haven't done that, you need to go home this afternoon. It's a short book, six chapters long. You can be through it in half an hour. Finding out what an apostolic delegate sent by an apostle was told to command and insist and urge in the Christians. And then you have to ask yourself, is my Christian life, have I responded to that urging in such a way that I've designed Christianity in me to reflect this? Have I responded to apostolic urging? The reason why apostles couldn't make good churches out of a lot of places because people like us won't do what they say, won't respond to the urging, won't listen to what was being said. And he goes into that in verse 3 here of chapter 6 on the right-hand side. Oh, I didn't mention what the last things were. His widows' instructions for widows, paying elders, my favorite topic, um, and treatment of slaves, or slaves' response to their earthly masters. 
But those were all the, uh, all the things that were commanded in Timothy. If anyone teaches otherwise, in other words, if you have a different opinion than St. Paul, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh -huh, uh -huh, and the teaching which accords with godliness, so we got what are the combination there? Otherwise, sound words of the Lord Jesus, teaching which accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. He has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You just told the history of Christendom for the last 2,000 years. Christians fighting with other Christians, if they were Christians at all, if they were Christians at all, who seemed to be, uh, the, the phrase, bereft of what this is all about. Their minds depraved. Now, these are people who, in many cases, we genuflect before, cross ourselves and say, they are great men. We were talking in the library last night, there was a big crowd. We were talking about canonization, because Mother Teresa just got canonized today. Um, won't go into that. But um, we have a tendency in evangelicalism to marvel at the great deeds of famous, famous uh, Christian scholars, etc. And sometimes some of these scholars are the most debased attitudes, nothing that would represent Jesus Christ or Christ would want to be represented by. Because they thought that whatever gain they had, whatever size of ministry they got, have you noticed a number of pastors falling in major um, uh, megachurch situations? Just because they're powerful. They're puffed up with conceit. You start thinking too much of yourself. Now, there's not a lot of people here. I Vaguely, I think there's probably 50, something like that. What if there were 10 more? A solid 60. You wouldn't notice. You probably didn't even notice the people came in late behind you. There are more people back there now. Ten more. Well, let's just, for the sake of my own thrill, twenty more. Because I'm the person that's going to be feeling it. I'm going to notice. I have a sense of what fifty is. Uh, see, I see too much pew. What if I couldn't see the pew? No pew anywhere. Not only were there no pew anywhere, but people were sitting up there, not just because they were kids and wanted to sit in the balcony, <laughs> but they had to. Gains, incremental, numberable gains, measure something to somebody in the ministry that they start to think about doing things that increase that gain. Some men it's about money, some men it's about numbers. Some men it's just about the breadth of fame. It's kind of a, a vague numbering. How many books did I sell? And they seem to be spending all their time trying to come up with some dispute about words. They seem to be craving controversy. 
There was one situation at one pastor's uh, pastoral conference about subject A, another pastor from another town showed up and was handing out books against that position in the parking lot to the pastors who were, you want to start a fist fight? It almost did. There's some video on YouTube of pastors, you know, all men built like me, uh, not ready for a fight, but wanting to. Because controversy, our way, their way, disputings, envy. Remember I told you back in chapter, someplace, chapter 2, I desire that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. God wants to have the church not be like hell. Remember that if, if you, whether you believe Lewis's uh, uh, fantasy of the great divorce, in his view, hell was quarreling one, you know, 24-7. Everybody did. We don't want a church like that. The church that Jesus Christ is making is desiring something different. If you teach and urge the duties that Paul gave Timothy to teach and urge, someone might not agree with you. Some might, might even leave your congregation. But Paul is saying it's not a matter that we can't have disagreement, but those that disagree with his teaching, those that disagree with his teaching, are puffed up with conceit and they don't know anything. Because what do I have to fall back on? With an apostle, I think it's, uh, I was thinking of this passage, I don't know if I can find it quickly. Um, oh, here's in 1 John 4. Um, Little children, you are of God and overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. Speaking of false teachers in the church, you will notice how most false teaching ends up being tracking right along with whatever the trend is. Usually Christians not being real bright people, about four or five years after the trend uh, gets underway, the Christians will step in and start to kind of come up with a Christianity that will appeal to the world. They are of the world, therefore what they say is of the world, and the world listens to them. We are of God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and he who is not of God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John is saying the same thing, that the apostolic voice is someone you either do or do not listen to. In Timothy, if you do not listen to this, if Timothy finds people that don't agree with what he is saying, they are people who want to cause a controversy. And to have some other view spoken with authority, what do you have to fall back on to give that authority? Your own conceit. You don't have the inspiration of God. You don't have the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit of God has picked sides in this matter. The things I really liked in this first five verses are the words depraved and the words uh, bereft. Yeah, maybe because it sounds old-timey. You don't speak of depraved uh, indifference, uh, bereft of something. 
But it communicates it well, the idea that, and, and, and this is uh, interesting that it's used this way, depravity is to drop into the bottom of all things. Okay? You are depraved. You, you, you dropped into the, into the sewer. Speaking of people whose conceit is making them fight for every inch of their popularity in the religion business. It's not a high depravity. Depravity is low. To step this way, to step away from the kind of Christianity that Paul uh, outlines in Timothy, to step away from that is not to step higher into more lofty scholarship and smarty pants uh, um, uh, doctoral dissertation that you might write. But it means to hit bottom. And bereft if you applied it to any of what would you know what you would mean if you say well um, being bereft of good sense being bereft of whatever uh, circumstances you know you are without and being bereft of the truth means that no matter how many people in that set call it Christianity, it is not the faith as God outlined through Paul. And not that they're not Christians, they might be very much Christians. Timothy's trying to get people to stop being this way. In chapter 1, he said that you may urge, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to occupy themselves with myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than divine training that is in faith. Whereas the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. What Christianity is, this kind of Christendom over here that has, a, that has an advancement, a gain, a perceived some kind of numeric way of measuring your success that is built on the conceits of men who think they know stuff is actually bereft of Christianity. And we, the rank and file, who who supposed to look up to the, and they insist that you look up to them, if we feel really, really out of our, our, our safety area, to doubt the wisdom of the famous. Are they... I don't have a problem with someone being famous. Not famous is not the problem. The famous is, the pro becomes a problem when they had to fight and create conflict and quarreling and were not agreeing with what Paul said in Timothy. And so what if somebody did agree with what Paul said in Timothy? But it wasn't based on love, sincere faith, and a clear conscience. People have argued for the truth the wrong way. That a person should be able to say the things that God expects of a minister without the person feeling, or you have to at least have them suspect that you love them at the same time. Not that you're kind of getting uh, a jolt out of saying awful things like shut the heck up and whatever else a pastor might say. Bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. The actual point of Christianity. What is it supposed to produce in you? Some sort of advancement and territory which we fight over. 
Because the next verse, which people quote in other circumstances, not that it can't be applied in other circumstances, is, is in this circumstance. There is great gain. Remember, these people think that godliness is a means of gain. Religion is a means of getting ahead in some way. You become a famous, you always noticed, and Roy and I and uh, others have maybe noticed it in the Christian uh, marketing business, when some famous non-believer finds his career on the skids and music especially, he would come out with a Christian album. Because Christians are idiots, and they're happy to grab the next ex-famous person and catapult them to the top of Christian record sales. Not that maybe some of them actually became Christians, I don't know, but there was always that. We know that people use religion all the time. And some people, not as a fallback maneuver, but to absolute power in the world. They want power. They might not want money. Money is just, remember, money is just a measurement device. It's the tape measure. Does it say in Ecclesiastes, money answers everything. Money allows my power to do stuff. Great gain. He says there's a great gain in godliness with contentment. What an awful thing to have happen to you. What could, what could possibly go wrong? I could tell you what would go wrong. You'll end up with a church like All Souls Christian and you'll be content. Why is nothing arranged to do anything about this? Fill in those. Look at that. Empty. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Maybe ten pews. Where's our church growth program? Well, the problem is, if we're not about gains, we're about walking in the light as he is in the light. That pushes you, and, and, and finding that that is a point of contentment, that we did what we were told. Far better that you, 50, walk in the light and have a kind of Christian life that is not fraught with quarrel, not fight over territory and conceits, disputings, envies, slandering others. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. An apostle saying, I will be content with my ministry just getting by. Because godliness with contentment is an absolute gain. But people who have measured it by earthly gain, earthly award, can't imagine that. Matter of fact, I've met known a number of dynamic church leaders, and um, they're rarely content. I don't know if I can think of any content with the way things are. They've always got to be changing things up, moving things forward, getting the new movement underway. Now this is not talking about business ambition. In your business, God bless you. You know what you're supposed to do in, in business? Make money. That's the actual plan. Um, I'm sure Paul in his uh, tent making startup was trying to make sure that his 
whatever his materials cost him, he wasn't charging less for his tents than his materials. So you get a little bit extra, make some profit, make some gain. That's the directive for business. It's not the directive for the church. What does God want in you in the church? What kind of success does he want from you? Now, he gives us instruction about contentment. He's coming out of, there are people out there that are creating a means of conflict to strike out on their own. When he says it in in Acts to the Ephesian elders, um, Acts 20... Uh, 21, I think. Nope. Acts 20. When he says, this is the passage I mentioned to you earlier about him talking to the same group of people he had left Timothy to try to monitor. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Out of their very group of elders. In an apostolic church. The whole point of this passage is, how do we get Christians on track with the duties that he outlined? The kind of pastoring, the kind of pastors. Is that bit on in chapter 3 about qualifications for bishop? How many churches follow that? How many pastors would be without a job if the first thing that was brought up is, is how are your kids? Well, you're not qualified, I'm sorry. We'd rather have a church without a pastor than you. Now, when people are looking for a different gain than the gain they have in Christ, they have to, and they're going to do it in religion. Everything is going to be labeled with Christian labels. The disputes about words will be Christian words they're disputing about. The meaning of this passage or that passage. What does it mean in the Greek, the Hebrew, the this, the that, the other? Everything will be challenged by... It's amazing how many times in in our ministry, in open discussion, I have to... Somebody gives a a response to a question, and you say, well, but Jesus said this. I mean, directly opposite what you just said. And how they can promptly ignore what Jesus said. People are in the business of building religious empires in which they can live, either as a citizen or as the king. And so when he says, I command you to or teach and urge these duties, it's not merely Paul's way or your way. We could say it's God's way through his inspiration of the apostles or your way. But he also says there is a, there is a frame in your gut when you are tempted to be moved by worldly desires, gain of some sort is what's moving you. Some kind of gain. And then he says, this contentment and godliness is a great gain. Do you recognize that the end of your journey in Christ 
Can you, you, in your garden, hoeing potatoes, 85 years old, suddenly dropping over and the wife finding you later? Hopefully, pretty quickly. But it, Nothing but you hoeing potatoes and pleasing your Lord Jesus. Godliness with contentment. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation. <coughs> Again, this passage is taken out of context, not badly, but to apply to other discussions about the dangers of wealth. Fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurt, hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now he's talking about when people step away from the apostolic teaching, they're going to have to have the inertial force of something else to drive them on, and it's going to be success. It's going to be gain. It's going to be profit. Profit in some measure, some sort of incremental numbered measure. You're supposed to be a content and godly Christian. They desire to be rich. They desire to be rich. And that's the snare. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. It is not just the normal greedy person buying the lottery ticket who you know, lusts after money. Well, that's bad. Or somebody gambling in Vegas lusts after money, and that's bad. We're not talking about those things directly. We're talking about this problem of people who want to be profiting in life and profiting in religion. The love of money has caused you to walk away from the faith because they're bereft of the truth. They're depraved in mind. This kind of motivation, the kind of Christian that builds a, 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 a denomination or builds a church on these kinds of thinkings, one, they're going to be fighting with everybody else. And they'll have to have a pretty tight loyalty and police action and to keep people from fighting inside. Because once you start monetizing everything or measuring it, you start having people fight over the results. Wandering from the faith. It's a craving. It's the love of money. And so I don't, when people go to this passage about anything, buddy who's we're all, we're Americans, you know. They were the wealthiest people to walk the face of the earth in history. You know, that Solomon could walk into your house and look at the flushing toilet and go, oh my heavens, what I would pay. You have so much more. You got these little machines you drive around with steering wheels. Drive you anywhere. I can, I can go to California, be there in a day. We're all stinking rich. But you say, no, no, I'm not. No, why you're not? You don't think about it. You're not moved by the desire to be rich. The desire to be rich is not for the rich. The desire to be rich is both rich people, some, and poor people, some. All the efforts to redistribute wealth by our socialist friends are people envying the rich and want to take the stuff and give it to whom? Themselves. They want money. And the love of money is the danger. Now you've heard that before, but I, I, I pulled out there at the end of this passage. Uh, there's a passage about the rich in this world. It's over on the left-hand side now. It says Timothy 6, 17. 
I wanted to pull it up. It's at the end of the chapter, and I wanted to pull it up and read it to you right here so it's on your mind as you're looking at the question of whether God is, is, is saying money shouldn't matter, money doesn't, or you shouldn't work hard to get it, make a profit or anything like that. He says, as for the rich in this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor set their hopes in uncertain riches, but on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of the life which is life indeed. He doesn't say, as for the rich in this world, there is, you have no business being rich. None whatsoever. Apologize to everybody and give everybody a sandwich. Whatever it is, you've got to redistribute your wealth. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you are to not have the kind of heart I warned everybody not to have. Not be haughty, not set your hopes in it. But these people in the church that have both monetized and, and measured their gain in religion, that's what their ministries are going to be centered on. You know, you've seen it on TV. You've seen those really icky televangelists they never talk about anything but money, ever. They're always talking about money. And it works. It actually works. They wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Because everybody else wants to be rich too. And if you lay your seed gift, your seed gift will come back to you a hundredfold. Shake it down, running over. Whatever the, the nonsense is. Everybody desiring to be rich, everyone loving money. It's not about rich people who had ambition in their business and built it up and there it is. Cranking out money hand over fist. They're supposed to be, hey, I, I shouldn't set my hopes on that. My walk should be back with the great gain in godliness with contentment. And if I am godly with contentment, my relationship to money is, is sort of exploding with largesse. You know, that, that whole notion of, of uh, being liberal and generous. They're to do good. But that goes back to the distinction between how I view the, the, the world of my religion. Is my world of religion based on a gain measure? Not just gain of money, but gain. If you're based on gain, and the gain is not godliness, you're going to set up something ugly, and it's going to be bereft of the truth. He tells Timothy then, this is the end of the book, this is the last bit of Timothy. But as for you, man of God, shun all this. So don't just tell others. Teach them this, urge them this. You shun all this. You should be measuring your Christian life the way God wants it measured. Am I doing the things he wants me to do? Is he looking upon me and saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Or have I been looking at either, there's, I'm not talking about your sins, okay, when I didn't do, when I knew I did what was not right for a Christian to do. We're talking about the kind of sins that are hidden under the auspices of religion where we design a religion that serves God not in the way he wants to be served. We're supposed to shun that. 
We aim at righteousness. What's, uh, I think First John says, he who does right is righteous. A lot of Christians who are, you know, grace of God, confess your sins, imputed righteousness. We all like that. We're very grateful for imputed righteousness. Aim at righteousness of this kind. It's not aim at regularly confessing your sins. It is aim at doing what is right. Godliness. Godliness is, is they say, what's the difference between righteousness and godliness? It's whose character is it, is it matching? You're like God. Faith. And this comes back to what, when, when Timothy is told, teach and urge these duties, and you're tempted to go, I don't know. I don't know if I like what he said about shut the heck up. I don't know if I like that. Faith is believing God. Do you believe God? Or do you believe the world? Because the only reason you would argue with anything the apostle said is because somebody else told you something else. Even if it was your own idea that thought it up. You thought of something else. And who are you? Faith means that you believe what God has said. Love. That your life is toward others. For others. Not just for you. What's the basic problem of sin is the nature of self. The nature of devotion to self. Love your neighbor as yourself. Second greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God is the greatest commandment. Both of them, not you. Your God, your neighbor. And if you love your neighbor as yourself, it says in Romans 12, you will observe all the commandments. These, all the commandments are fulfilled. Love your neighbor as yourself. Steadfastness, that means you dependably so. The people would think of you, not week to week, they wonder how he's doing this week. Have you ever been in that position? The people knew sometimes you're doing just great, other times, mm. Are you dependable in your faith in Jesus Christ? Gentleness. Because there's a lot of breakable people out there. Gentle is not fragile. You're not gentle if you're fragile. If you're fragile, that's the reason the rest of us have to be gentle. Gentle can be very, very strong. He knows how to control themselves because there are a lot of sinful, messed up, foolish people in this world. I got a little uh, nephew with breakable bones. It's becoming almost a, a career now. It's a major in many colleges. How to be offended very quickly. We're to deal gently. Fight the good fight of the faith. Just in case anybody was thinking, we're turning into St. Francis here. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. When you made the good confession. This is what you were called to when you made the good confession. What, what do you think the good confession was? We, we could invent stuff. What was when I threw a stick in the camp, fire at camp and said, uh, I really felt changed by the last two weeks. 
When you walked an aisle in the Southern Baptist Church, when you signed a card at a campus crusade, whatever, or went forward at Billy Graham's preaching, something. The good, the good confession. I think it has to do with your salvation, yes. How do we know what it is, the good confession? What well, says, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. It tells you that Jesus Christ did it. Well, that's John, Gospel of. Where is John? I have the reference here someplace. John 18. If you read through it, John has a long conversation with Pilate. Jesus and Pilate have this interchange in the trial. There's a lot more detail in John. But Jesus doesn't, he's a little evasive. He's a little evasive. He'll say nothing in some cases. At the end of their relationship together, uh, Pilate just asks him, where are you from? You're not from around here, are you? Jesus gave no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. That's not the good confession. What's the good confession? Paul is referring to Jesus before Pilate. If you look at John 18... When Pilate asks him, verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? The good confession. Jesus declares obscurely, his reason for being here. I came to bear witness to the truth that people who wanted and pursued and were of the truth would hear him. That's his good confession. Everything else doesn't rise to that level of great claim. So when you make the good confession, you are stepping into your half of that. He came into the world to bear witness to it so that people who were of the truth would hear him. Your part of the good confession is to say, yes, I'm one of the ones who heard it. I know that Jesus came to bring truth into the world. I have heard his voice. I do what he says. So, what were we called to in that good confession? We're called to listen to Christ. We're called to listen to his apostles. We're not called to listen to the history of Christianity. You could grab, if you could package the history of Christianity up into a box, please kick it down a flight of stairs. Do something. You just, it's, it's an awful thing to try to defend. A lot of dear Christians in the history of Christianity. A lot of people did right things, rarely. But you're always having to make excuses of why the church behaved so badly. Even the group that thought like you did. But not with Jesus Christ. 
not with his apostles. I don't have any problem defending what the apostles did or what the Lord did. You were called to a kind of life. Take hold of the eternal life. When you make that good confession, you were called to something. Just like Christ, when he made the good confession, I charge you to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this will be made manifest in the proper time by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can say. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. But he told you something in that. As we listen to that, oh God dwelling in unapproachable light that we can't see him, but our Lord came, sent into this world to bear witness to the truth. And he says, when those Greeks were saying, we would see Jesus, that's our motivation. And the Lord says at another point that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What you have, if you have seen Jesus Christ. And so our hope in Christ is that at his appearing and his manifestation, both of those are Christ appearing again. Not his first coming, but his second. That by his appearing and his manifestation, we are rewarded at the end of an irreproachable life. We're supposed to keep this life unstained. Are you the kind of person who is really beginning to understand just how simple the Christian life is? It really is. It really is darn simple. It's only when we pick up teams from one of these long-term NFL franchises that we call denominations that fight each other every season for the last 2,000 years only when you start to do that do you begin to think that something's got to be done differently or more excitingly or with some gain. Be content. Find godliness. Find the way to be at peace with what God has done in you. You can work quietly with your hands and live peaceably with your neighbors and keep yourself unstained from the world. That's right. He, right after that amen, he has that little bit about the wealthy, which I pulled out and I will probably go to hell for that, but rearranging the scriptures. But that was where the space was. That, But then he ends up the verse of the book. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the godless chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. Grace be with you. There is chatter and contradictions and all that. You ever been in a good theological knockdown drag out? I enjoy them all to pieces. But you go, this is just word parsing, sentence structure, argument all the time. And you're and you're wondering if you if you, of course you think you're right. And so you're in the argument going, this person doesn't even realize he just said a contradiction. An absolute and you point it out and they still don't see the contradiction. If we get caught up in that, and this is all knowledge, this is all smarty pants Christianity. Smarty pants Christians, and we encourage you, if you get anything, get insight, get knowledge, get wisdom. So that kind of being smart's great. But smarty pants, you know what a smarty pants is. And you know that they would like to be considered in Protestant circles as the luminaries. 
that being smart is, in that way makes you a luminary. It is falsely called knowledge. It's godless. And they end up missing the mark. They're not the people that lead the examples. Paul, uh, what's his name? Timothy was told to live an exemplary life so that people could witness what he was like in Christ. Grace be with you. Let's thank God. Thank you very much, Lord. We're very grateful. We'd ask that we would be set free from a bondage uh, to gain-based religion. Make us like your son. Give us the great contentment and joy in pursuing the godliness that is in the advice of your holy apostles. We'd ask that we would be ready to bend the knee, to have faith, and to be steadfast in it, and to love. In your son's name, amen.